Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 218 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the hidden origins of the Jewish school of mysticism known as Kabbalah. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Kabbalah is a school of Jewish mysticism that has been around for centuries. Today, it's experiencing a revival in popularity with pop stars like Madonna and Ariana Grande becoming advocates of it. But there are controversies surrounding Kabbalah or Kabbalah. One of them is its history. Kabbalists claim that its teachings go back more than 3,000 years. But modern academic scholars have challenged this. So what is the truth about Kabbalah? Where did it come from? And what happened in its turbulent history? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, why did you want to do today's episode? I've been aware of Kabbalah for a long time. In fact, before I was Catholic, when I was in my teens, I was a New Ager for a number of years. And during that time, I encountered uh, Kabbalah and got a rather crude understanding of its teachings. As an adult, I've continued to study all kinds of religious views, including those of Kabbalah, uh, both because I study religion and religious history as part of my work as an apologist, and because I study esoteric things as part of my research for Mysterious World. So for some time, I've been watching Esoterica, the YouTube channel of a Jewish scholar named Dr. Justin Sledge, and he discusses all kinds of different things that we talk about and will be talking about in future episodes on Mysterious World. He covers a lot of topics, but he's devoted a lot of attention to Kabbalah mysticism. So I decided it would be good to interview him on Mysterious World and let him give us an accurate scholarly presentation of Kabbalah. And what should listeners know about today's show? This will be a two-part discussion. Dr. Sledge and I had such a productive discussion that we talked for a little more than two hours, so I decided to divide the discussion in half to keep the episode from going super long. As a result, today we'll be discussing the origins and history of Kabbalah, and as you said, there is a controversy about how Kabbalah started. Practitioners of Kabbalah and academic scholars hold different views on the subject. We'll also cover major events in the rather turbulent history of Kabbalah, including a brief look at the most famous false messiah in Jewish history, a man named Shabbatai Zevi. Uh, Also, we'll be looking at how Kabbalah developed and how it's influenced modern Jewish movements like Hasidism. Next week, we'll be going over the teachings of Kabbalah, and that's when things get even stranger, because Kabbalah teaches some really weird things from the perspective of Christianity and from the perspective of traditional Judaism. So definitely look forward to hearing about that. Excellent. I can't wait to hear uh, from Dr. Sledge. Before we get to that, I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Tom C., Michael O., James N., Eric B., and Mary N. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Dr. Justin Sledge was born and raised in a proud working-class Mississippi family. He earned his Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of Memphis. He's a professor of philosophy and religion at several institutions in the metro Detroit area and a popular local educator. On YouTube, he operates the channel Esoterica, which explores the arcane in history, philosophy, and religion. The channel covers topics such as alchemy, magic, Kabbalah, mysticism, the occult, and more using current academic scholarship. Dr. Justin Sledge, welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Thank you very much, Jimmy. Thank you so much for having me and uh, looking forward to this conversation on the, on the Kabbalah. Yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Other than what's in the bio I just read, is there anything you'd like us to know? Um, I belong to the Reconstructionist uh, Jewish movement, which is a um, a non supernatural version of Judaism. So it's a little different than um, than uh, some other versions of Judaism, which can confuse people because I sort of look the look right with the yamaka yeah. and the beard. Um, uh, and so sometimes people think, "Are you a rabbi?" I'm like, no, I'm not a rabbi. I am married to a rabbi, but I'm not mm-hmm. a rabbi myself. Yeah, um, your wife is a rabbi. My wife is a rabbi. That's right. Uh, the Reconstructionist movement and the Reform movement, the Conservative movement, all uh, allow for uh, women clergy, which I think is, uh, uh, I think is an ultimately a good idea. And um, so, yeah, so I belong to that movement. And um, what else to know about me? I study strange things and make weird videos for the internet. Uh, uh-huh. which is, so it's not do a, I. Yeah, <laughs> it's not a bad living, all things told. Not a bad, not a bad gig. So it's a lot of fun, and I get to hang out with cool people like you and have conversations of, about uh, things like Kabbalah, which is a lot of fun. Okay, well, why don't we start with explaining the term Kabbalah because it's unfamiliar to a lot of people. They may have heard it, and they may know it's a kind of Jewish mysticism. But where does the term come from? What does it mean etymologically? So it comes from a Hebrew word, which a word uh, word root was shoresh, which just means to receive. So literally, you could probably translate it as tradition, right? Mm-hmm. So it actually just means tradition. So now, by tradition, what they mean is esoteric tradition, traditions that are not exoteric. Exoteric traditions are the common traditions we would have in Judaism, like how to light candles for Hanukkah, how to pray in the morning, how to keep kosher. Those are the exoteric traditions. These are specifically the esoteric, the hidden traditions within Judaism. And Kabbalah, as we know it, began to exist um, in the Middle Ages. I'm sure we'll get more into the origin of it, but it literally it just means tradition. Um, so it doesn't have a specific name. I think there's a song about that. Tradition. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Fiddle <laughs> on the Roof, uh, classic uh, uh, scripture in Judaism. Um so, yeah, it just means tradition. But uh, anytime anyone refers to uh, Kabbalah or anytime anyone refers to themselves as um, as a member of the Mukabalim, uh, they're referring to themselves as a, a Kabbalist. Um, they're not mm-hmm. traditionalists. They're referring to themselves as people who practice and or believe in this esoteric dimension of, of Judaism. 
Yeah, and you just used a, a Hebrew word, mukabalim, that would mean a practitioner of Kabbalah, kind of the English equivalent equivalent, as you said, would be a Kabbalist. Right, right. It's in the plural there, but yeah. So that would be a, a Mukabalah would be someone who does Kabbalah. Yeah. Now, uh, do you, now you mentioned your Reconstructionist, uh, in Reconstructionist Judaism, and you said that's non-supernatural, but you do pray, for example, correct? That's right. I do pray. And um, are you a Kabbalist? I'm not a Kabbalist. No, I would not consider myself a a, a Kabbalist, which is, which would mean in this case to say um, I don't subscribe to the belief of the antiquity of a lot of these beliefs, and I don't subscribe to the metaphysical um, uh, nature of them. So no, I, I don't. Uh, I don't. I'm not. I would not consider myself a Kabbalist. Now, of course, I always say that I'm not a Kabbalist, and everyone says, "Well, that's the same kind of thing a Kabbalist would say." <laughs> um, so uh, I can never, I can never really get around it. You know, people are like, so you're not a Kabbalist. I'm like, no, it's like, that's a lot of Kabbalah, Kabbalah books on your bookshelf for not to be a Kabbalist. I'm like, I study it academically, yeah. um, not religiously. Although I think, and this is maybe a difference between perhaps Christianity and Islam and Judaism, whereas in Christianity and uh, Islam, the, the, the boundaries of the canon are quite fixed. What is and isn't scripture are pretty fixed by now. Of course, there's obviously exceptions with, you know, for instance, the Church of Latter-day Saints or something. But in Judaism, the, the, the boundary of canon is a lot more porous. And what is authoritative in Judaism continues to evolve. And so if I'm studying my religion for religious reasons, then I would include all the texts we'll be talking about today as uh, authoritative. Now, not authoritative in the sense that they can trump the Torah. Uh, there's an order of authority but still authoritative in the sense that they are part of the tradition and they, um, they deserve a seat at the table, but they, you know, uh, maybe not the head of the table. Perhaps analogous to, say, the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas in Christianity. They're not on the level of scripture, but right. they're an important part of the tradition. Yeah, I would say. Even I think even higher than the writings of Thomas, uh, Thomas became authoritative, although he wasn't in the 1270s. He was no. part of the same, you know, he, the condemnation of 1277 applied to him as much as it did any other, many other people. But um, I would say that, that the text of Kabbalah, they say for Zohar, they say for Yetzirah, they say for Bahir, I would say that they're, they're probably on nearly equal footing as other texts uh, in, in, the, in the canon. Maybe more like an infallible document by a pope or an ecumenical council. Yeah, maybe something like that. I mean, insofar as the pope doesn't speak infallibly too often. Um, but yeah, he, he doesn't. Yeah. 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 No, it's uh, it's, it's pretty rare. Uh, I think last time I did it was 1950. 1950. OK. Was yeah. it uh, on the. I mean, the Immaculate Conception or something? It was quite a, yeah. The, the Assumption of Mary. Assumption and of Mary, I've, yeah. I've done a study. I wrote a book on, um, on, on the magisterium and how it works and how to evaluate magisterial documents. And there's only something like eight papal documents that have ever engaged in fallibility. Yeah, it's pretty rare. Uh, but, you know, in Judaism, we have dozens of volumes that have gotten into scripture that way. So in that way, it's actually a lot looser mm-hmm. that we have, uh, we have, dozens of volumes that are considered uh, so much so that we would consider them like um, sacred texts, which is to say you would not bring them into the bathroom with you. You would uh, kiss them when you pick them up and put them down. You would treat them with reverence. Uh, um, they would be buried in a graveyard, just like you would other sacred scriptures. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it's, they're, they're relatively high ranking. Uh, and for Orthodox Jews, the Zohar, for instance, is 
I mean, it's literally revealed. It's revealed, revealed text. So they would consider it on par with any other revealed text in Judaism. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, before we move on to the next uh, question about Kabbalah, I wanted to tie up something for uh, listeners who may not be familiar. You mentioned how in his own day, St. Thomas Aquinas didn't have the reputation he does now and was even subject to part of the condemnations of 1277. Mm-hmm. A lot of listeners won't know what that is. So basically, um, in the in the 1200s, as part of the Aristotelian revival, with all these new Aristotelian texts that were being translated into Latin and being discussed by uh, Christian uh, theologians and philosophers, some of them got ideas that were perceived as contrary to the Christian faith. And in 1277, the Bishop of Paris listed a bunch of propositions that were to be rejected. And some of them were actually ones held by Thomas Aquinas, though not all of them. It wasn't an attack on Thomas Aquinas. It was a general issue that was going on at the University of Paris at the time. And people may not be familiar with it, but actually Thomas Aquinas's reputation in his own day and for a time thereafter was not nearly what it came to be. He really he really got popular in reruns, as you might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and most of the stuff was aimed at uh, what is now called radical Averroism. Yeah. And um, Thomas was never an Averroist. So um, and most of the seeker of Brabant to people like that. Right. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about Kabbalah? So I think the biggest misconceptions that people might have when it comes to uh, Kabbalah is that all Jews believe in it, which they don't. There are many Jews uh, that do not, that reject Kabbalah. They say, no, it's a, for, it's a fraud, it's a fraud, or it's, it was a medieval hoax. So it's, it's still polarizing. Some are very into it. Some are very against it. So that's one interesting thing about, um, about Kabbalah in that regard. Um, although I think another thing about it is that insofar as Judaism has anything like a systematic theology, to go back to Thomas or some Hans Kung or something, insofar as Judaism really has a systematic theology, it would be some version of Kabbalah. Kabbalah is, in, in many ways, has become the systematic theology of much of Orthodox Judaism. So in that way, it has a kind of authority. Uh, it also led to the greatest scandal in Jewish history, which was the uh, false messiah Shabbatai Tzvi, where more than half of the world's Jews um, converted over to believing that Shabbatai Tzvi was the messiah in the 17th century and uh, packed their bags and were ready to go back to Palestine. And so in uh, 1666, he converted to Islam, much to... Uh, the horror of all those people and much of the happiness of everyone who thought he was a fraud. And so it also inspired one of the greatest uh, catastrophes in Judaism as well. So it's had a very tortured history uh, in the history of Judaism. And um, I think another thing that people may find interesting about Kabbalah is uh, we often think of mysticism these days as a little hippy dippy. You kind of believe what you want and, you know, uh, Kabbalah is incredibly rigorous when it comes to the Jewish law. In fact, it says that not only do you not get to pick and choose among the Jewish law, the Jewish law must be so scrupulously followed precisely because it has metaphysical implications about reality and the coming of the Messiah. And so unlike other forms of mysticism these days where you think, oh, mysticism is kind of whatever you feel, Kabbalah is nothing like that. It is the most conservative branch of Judaism uh, or the most conservative interpretation of Judaism, and it demands uh, rigorous, scrupulous attention to the law. In fact, so much so that laws that uh, in the Middle Ages were sometimes even ignored, Kabbalah insists that they be given special uh, emphasis. So 
Another thing people may not know is that the Kabbalah is probably responsible for the one prayer service that you've ever been to. If you've ever been to a synagogue on a Friday night, that service is called Kabbalah Shabbat, the reception, the receiving of the, of the, of the Shabbat. And all of the hymns for that service were developed by Kabbalists in the 16th century. So that is a situation where literally an entirely new prayer service. Uh, Jews traditionally pray three times a day. On Shabbat, there's a fourth that's added. And that fourth one is uh, Kabbalat Shabbat. Um, you can hear the word to receive the Sabbath is what that literally means. Uh-huh. Um, and the most famous song that most people would ever have heard is Lech Adodi, Come, O My Bride, and uh, O My Beloved. And uh, that song was written by 16th century Kabbalists. So most people who've ever, who are not Jewish or not Orthodox, who've ever been to a service on a Friday night, you've participated in Kabbalah. Fascinating. Uh, I I, I have been uh, to uh, synagogue on a Friday night, and I did not know that that service was specifically Kabbalistic. Yeah, most people don't. Um, Most people don't. And it's sort of, you know, it's one of these funny things. But uh, yeah, even the order of the Psalms that get sung are sung are ordered in a particularly mystical way. So the entire service is uh, is deeply Kabbalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, by the way, uh, just a note for listeners, uh, we will, uh, in, in all likelihood in the future, be having an episode on Shabbat Tzavi, um, because it is a fascinating story and it has a big twist. So yeah. um, more than yeah, one. I taught, a whole cla- yeah, I taught a whole class about him once and it was a fun class because um, he's just such a, uh, you could, one could do a whole class just on failed messiahs. And that's just an interesting, and Shabbat Tzavi being a very interesting example of one of those. So, yeah, he's yeah. a fascinating character. Now, is uh, people will likely have heard of different uh, groups within Judaism that are kind of comparable to Christian denominations like Orthodox Judaism, Conservative, Reform, and Reconstruction. Is Kabbalah one of those, or is it more like a, a school of thought that crosses group boundaries? Yeah, it's much more like the latter. Kabbalah is sort of like the the general field of what we would call speculative theosophy. So not theology, like rigorous systematic theology that never really took hold in Judaism with the exception of Maimonides, but it's more like the, the speculation around the nature of God um, that cuts across all boundaries. So you would have uh, reformed Jews, uh, reconstructionist Jews, Orthodox Jews, who uh, all of them would be influenced by Kabbalah. In fact, if you go to uh, a reform synagogue, they will talk about tikkun olam, the reparation of the world. And in reform Judaism, this typically is thought of as sort of uh, doing things for the benefit of the world, charity or uh, social justice action or helping out in the soup kitchen on Christmas Day so the, their Christian brethren can have the day off. And they would say, this is tikkun olam, the reparation of the world. But that idea is Kabbalistic. That idea comes right out of Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. So it exists in all spectrums and all denominations of Judaism. But like I said, there are also uh, denominations of Judaism that completely reject it. That say that um, that it's not it's not um, that it's uh, anathema. Is uh, is Kabbalah something that uh, its practitioners or adherents are completely agreed about, or is there a diversity of opinion and practice among Kabbalists? These days, there's a lot more agreement, at least at the lower levels of discussion and practice. Um, Now, at the higher levels of discussion and practice, there's still active disagreement. And historically, there have been separate schools of Kabbalah. But um, mostly during the 18th century, they were all fused into one generally accepted school of thought. 
That's changing a little bit now, and there have been some splits since then uh, with things like the the Kabbalah the Kabbalah Center in Los Angeles and stuff like that. There's a lot of that's a very divisive topic, and so but okay, generally we'll, speaking, we'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll come back to it. So it, by the 18th century, Kabbalah was more or less systematized uh, as it occurs now. So if you were to pick up a, a general introduction to Kabbalah from a ultra orthodox or orthodox bookstore, you would probably get a, a pretty standard account of what's going on in, in Kabbalah generally. Um, but historically there were several divergent schools that did not agree with each other at all. Um, yeah, strongly disagree with each other. And uh, eventually they were all absorbed into a system of Kabbalah uh, that was pioneered and developed by a rabbi in the 16th century named Isaac Luria. And we'll also talk about him. Yeah. yeah. So what do uh, traditional Kabbalists believe about the origins of Kabbalah historically? Where do they think it came from? So uh, the traditional story of Kabbalah would be that it came from God, that it was actually part of the revelation at Mount Sinai. It was part of the oral revelation. Jews believe that there were two distinct combined revelations at Mount Sinai, the written Torah, which are the Hebrew, the books of the Hebrew Bible, um, or at least the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. And then we have an, an oral Torah, and that is all the uh, the accounts of how to do all the stuff that's in the written Torah. And in that oral, that oral tradition, there is the idea, at least for Orthodox Jews, traditional Jews, that all of the ideas of Kabbalah were actually revealed there and kept secret. Moses learned them, taught them to Aaron, they taught them to Joshua, and they were preserved all the way down until they got to Shimon Bar Yochai, a... Um, second century rabbi known for his extreme piety. In fact, the documents about him in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, another, uh, the Jerusalem Talmud are very mixed. He's a very mixed character. But they t- traditionally ascribed to the idea that he was the last person to hold on to the Kabbalah as it descended from Moses. And then because um, basically the Jews were facing extinction, he taught it to a group of disciples and those disciples disseminated it all the way up until the Middle Ages. And then in the Middle Ages, it was made public. So for uh, listeners who may not be familiar with the history of Judaism in this period, this is the second century. And towards the end of the first century, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans. And that was in AD 70. And that was a really pivotal event for the development of Judaism, because now the sacrifices, which could only be offered at the temple in Jerusalem, could no longer be offered. And there was a there was a big hope, especially at the time and still today, of rebuilding the temple in various Jewish quarters. And so there was a need to preserve the knowledge of like, how did you do these sacrifices and how did you adjudicate various other legal issues that were connected with the temple or connected with life in uh, first century Palestine. And um, so after the war, there was an effort to kind of set up a preservation movement And in the second century, um, Shimon Bar Yochai was one of the people involved in that preservation movement. And eventually it led to the writing of a set of uh, a, a set of tractates called the Mishnah which uh, attempt to preserve this earlier information that was not written in the Torah. And then the Talmud, which people many will have heard of, is a set of commentaries on the Mishnah. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, all of that is public or exoteric 
uh, material, um, and it led to the formation of what's called today rabbinic Judaism. But the Kabbalists, if I understand you correctly, are saying, okay, well, in addition to that oral Torah, which was also believed to have been given to Moses on Mount Sinai, there was, in addition to the exoteric Torah that you'll find in the Mishnah and the Talmud, there is also this esoteric or hidden oral tradition that they have. And um, and uh, Shimon Bar Yochai in the second century was kind of the information bottleneck from that, from which that knowledge then spread again. Right. I think it may be a good analogy for this is just imagine there was some nuclear holocaust, God forbid, and there were only a few Americans left. And someone asked, well, I don't know, uh, the 4th of July. How do we celebrate the 4th of July to preserve the celebration of the 4th of July for you know previous next generations? Well, you would ask yourself, well, do you get up in the morning? What is the first thing you do? Well, you prepare for the barbecue. And you're like, okay, what do I have to barbecue? Do you, can you barbecue on a grill? What kind of grill? A gas grill or a charcoal grill? Um, do you have to shoot fireworks? How many fireworks do you have to shoot? Do you have to shoot ones? You know? And so it's how loud can they be? And imagine trying to codify how to do something that you do every 4th of July or every Christmas. But the worry is, right, that your people are going extinct. And there may not be leadership to, ca- to carry those traditions on. That's the Mishnah. The Mishnah is just an oral uh, catalog of how to carry on Judaism, basically, if the entire leadership is going to be killed because the Romans were hunting down and killing the Jewish leadership at the time. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, you're exactly right. The idea is that Shema Bar Yochai was thought to be the last repository of this sort of secret knowledge. And then in order to continue it, he taught all of his disciples this sort of secret knowledge. Now, that's the, the Orthodox story. Um, and we do know that in the Talmud, there were forms of mysticism that they do mention uh, in fact, one of them is called Merkava mysticism. This is where one descends into the thrones of God um, and sees the palaces of God. And it's even obliquely mentioned in Second Corinthians. It seems like Paul may have been instructed upon this stuff where he uh, he says what, he knew. What passage guy. are you thinking of? Oh, you mean the ascendant to third yeah. heaven? Yeah. Yeah. He says, I, well, I, I know a guy who was called up to the third heaven. Um, that language is very Merkava language. That's the kind of thing of Merkava, that the idea that there are tiers of heaven and that one can enter into them, and one can be caught up to them. Um, it seems likely to me that, that Paul had some instruction on this uh, Merkava tradition, um, and maybe was even trained in it at some level. Mm-hmm. It also has roots in the book of Ezekiel, mm-hmm. um, because Ezekiel has this vision of God's throne slash chariot or Merkava, and that's kind of the scriptural root from which a lot of this um mystical exploration flows from right yeah and so this was a whole other form of mysticism that existed before the kabbalah in fact at least according to academics but uh eventually those forms of mysticism were also rolled up into kabbalah also so um kabbalists believe that their tradition goes all the way back to sinai Mm -hmm. what has modern scholarship come to think about the origins of kabbalah so it all hinges on what you mean by kabbalah And typically, modern scholars mean a very specific thing about Kabbalah. They mean the traditions and speculations that follow from a text called the Sefer Zohar. The Sefer Zohar, or the Book of Radiance, is a pretty substantial volume of literature uh, written in a very peculiar dialect of Aramaic um, that appeared in the 13th century in in Spain, around a circle of a rabbi named Moses of Leon. And that literature spawned Kabbalah as we know it. 
Now, the traditional story is that the Kabbalah, that, that text, Sefer Zohar, goes all the way back to Mount Sinai via Shimon Bar Yochai. That's the, the traditional story. Modern scholars have uh, taken the Sefer Zohar and examined it very, very carefully, and they're very skeptical of this story. The general academic position and the position I hold is that the Kabbalah, as we know it, really developed in southern France and in, in Spain, beginning sometime in the 12th and 13th centuries. And so this, all this literature, and there are more texts than just the Sefer, um, the Sefer Zohar. Uh, there's some other smaller texts and larger texts, but all of the literature as we know it uh, coalesced in that time period and set the groundwork for the, the Kabbalah as we know it. Um, so tr the traditional camp goes back to Sinai via Shema Bar Yochai, the modern academic camp. It began in the Middle Ages. Now, there are also forms of Jewish mysticism that do go back to the Second Temple period that do exist in the Middle Ages. Um, but those are distinct from Kabbalah. So what I would say is we can think about um, Merkava Hechelot mysticism as a distinct form of mysticism prior to the Kabbalah. That's where you go into the heavens. You go on those mystical journeys. And the other is the Kabbalah proper. And that has to do with um, the Sefer Zohar and the text that was developed primarily in what scholars now think the, the 1270s, if you want to get a, a more exact number on it. So if you picked up the Zohar and started reading it, what would you be reading? What kind of literature is it? Is it like a story or a legal code or what would you what would you find? Yeah, the general framing of it is that it is a it is a narrative in which Shimar Yochai and his companions are traveling through the Galilee. And as they travel through the Galilee, they stop along the way and they discuss the Torah. And as they're discussing the Torah, they're not just discussing the regular Torah, they're discussing very mystical aspects of the Torah. So you can think about it as sort of like a, a, a narrative around a group of people traveling around having conversations. Now, there are very various layers to it, some older and some later. Uh, kind of them, like the Canterbury Tales. It's a bit Canterbury Tales-ish, not quite as highly structured as that, uh, but yeah, a bit Canter Canterbury Tales-ish. Um, the Canterbury Tales are about a century after the composition of the Zohar as we have it, but yeah, um, and part of how we know that it's, we think it's a medieval composition is that uh, they get all kinds of, the writer gets things wrong that a person living in the galley would never get wrong. For instance, they think some things are south where they actually are north and some things west when they really are east. and sons-in-law and father-in-law get reversed and they, they make strange, there are strange errors in there. Um, also the Aramaic that it's written in is a peculiar dialect of Aramaic. Uh, so peculiar that uh, it seems to have been primarily developed by the writers of it. Uh, it's based on Palestinian Galilean Aramaic. So they're actually writing in a dialect of Aramaic that would have been used in the third, fourth centuries. Um, but they're, it's so strange and ungrammatical that, uh, scholars are now fairly confident that it's it was artificially developed in the in in the Middle Ages. It's kind of like if people today tried to speak in Elizabethan King James English or Jacobian, I guess I should say English, they'd get it wrong. Yeah, they would sound you would sound kind of right at first blush, and then you would realize, oh yeah, you 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 know you know it would be something like how does how doeth thy play baseball? Yeah. And you'd be like baseball. 
That's like baseball and Elizabethan English, right? So yeah. Oh, you, also you, the, the the missed pronoun thy. No, right. How yeah, do how, thy. Yeah, how do thy? <laughs> yeah, or you know, you would see all kinds of grammatical errors, and, and frankly, you just see Spanish words in there. Um, mm-hmm. no, so there's Spanish words end up inside this Aramaic text that should be from the uh, second century. So yeah, you see mistakes that shouldn't be there. Um, now the the traditional position has explanations for all of that. They actually have they you know they have arguments as to why that stuff is the way that it is, and uh, I don't find those terribly convincing. But the traditional camp does have uh, so hard apologetics where they do strenuously argue that there are good reasons why the text is the way that it is, and partly what they argue is it's a oral tradition that was written down and it has an accumulated history, and so a lot of the mis- mistakes are just part of the accumulation. Hmm. Uh, which, yeah, again, I, um, it's good to give them at least their 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 fair share as to why they think it's in fact authentic. Yeah. Do uh, modern academic scholars have any uh, guesses about who wrote the Zohar? The general theory now is that it was probably written by the circle of people around a rabbi from uh, Leon uh, named uh, Moshe de Leon. And um, we think it was probably primarily written by him and his circle. And we say him and his circle because there seems to have been, the text seems to reflect different attitudes about different ideas, and they're all edited together into one text. And it seems like there's slightly different dialects of this Aramaic in there, and there's slightly different emphasis on what they're focusing on. Uh, and it seems like it was all edited together at some point, 1270s, 1280s. And so generally speaking, we now think it wasn't um, one person writing it. That was the, the previous generation, Gershom Sholem, previously thought that one person was responsible for the whole thing. The more modern scholarship tend to think of it sort of a, um, what is it, a, a horse built by committee. Um, it's something more like that. It's, it's a text built by committee, and that's why it's so uneven. So with the uh, the Zohar being written around 1270, um, that's towards the end of the 13th century. And it was a while before one of the most important figures in the history of Kabbalah uh, was born. His name was Isaac Luria. Uh, when did he live and why is he important to Kabbalah? Yeah. So what happens in the generation after the Sefer Zohar actually is that there is a huge debate among the people that know about it. Yeah. Oh, I, I should mention um, Sefer just means book. book so yeah, Sefer yeah. Zohar is the book of Zohar or the yeah. Zohar book. Yeah, the book of radiance. Um, uh, in fact, my second child's name is Zohar, oh. um, uh, which is funny because I really argued against that name because I thought it was too heavy. And my 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 partner, my wife, was like, oh, I like that name. It's nice. Hey, um, anything with a Z has to be a cool name. It's a cool name. You get to yeah, you get to have a Z in your name. And um, um, but yeah, it's uh, she thought it, I thought it was too heavy and still do. But uh, but now we call them Zobear, which is a really great way of softening the yeah the edge of Zohar, which sounds so. <laughs> it does sound a little bit like I mean to an English speaking ear that's not familiar with the history of Judaism, Zohar could sound like an alien overlord bent on world domination. It, it does have a sort of very otherworldly feel to it. Uh, it's the Z sound, right? We never and it's always in comic books you get a Z or an X as the as the alien bad guy, and so yeah. Uh, and if folks are curious, you can see the Zohar right there on my shelf that's those uh-huh. black books uh that's the actual that's the books we're talking about you can see there's about five volumes of it right there um in the english translation uh it comes out to be 12 volumes uh-huh. so it's a pretty substantial volume 
pretty substantial wow. text. Yeah. Um, the Aramaic is very um, concise and to translate it, you're having to do a lot of unpacking. That's why it sort of mm-hmm. balloons in size. Um, yeah. A similar thing happens with, uh, to give an illustration for, um, for, some of the listeners um, it's like in Latin, Latin has no word for the, and it frequently encodes information in a noun that we would use a preposition for like of. So if the, and for people who've taken Latin, I'm thinking of the genitive case here. So you, you would use the genitive case, just change the ending of a word to make it like of Bob instead of uh instead of instead of saying of bob that would just be one word it would be a modification of bob and so when you translate latin into english it gets longer because you've got to add the and where where it's appropriate you've got to add of you've got to add other prepositions and so it it expands as you put it into english and the same thing you're saying is happening with the aramaic of the zohar yeah and and latin's even better at that right amasne does he, do, do, do you love me? Like in one line or mm-hmm. it's, it is raining. You can do it all in one word in Latin. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the Aramaic is a, is, a, is a bit like that. Although what ends up happening in the Aramaic is it's less of the fact that it's driven by the case and the declension system. It's more that the, the terms are incredibly technical and have to be sort of not only just translated, but also explained as you go in many ways. Um, so in that way, it, it greatly expands. And also, um, the footnotes in the standard uh, edition of the of the Zohar will dominate the page um, because it'll be so the language can be so technical and obscure. Mm-hmm. But so uh, I'm sorry. Getting back to Isaac Luria, right. who, who is he and why is he? When did he live and why is he important? So Isaac Luria is one of these characters in history that manages to change the world in many ways without writing anything down. Um, you know, we think of Jesus and Muhammad and. Um, and uh, the Buddha, Socrates, Socrates. Yeah. He's always characters that managed to make a huge dent in the world without writing anything down, which I got to learn to do that because uh, man, writing is, um, (laughs) I got to learn that trick. But so Isaac Luria is a, it was a Kabbalist that came along uh, a couple centuries after the Zohar, but to understand him, you have to understand one other major event and that's 1492. Uh, For most people, they hear 1492 and they, the mind goes to ocean, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And yes, Columbus did set sail in 1492. That's also the year the Alhambra decree uh, was completed in which all Jews were required to either uh, leave um, the, the kingdom of Castile and Aragon, which is basically all of modern day Spain, or convert to Christianity. That was the ultimatum they were given. And it was a disaster. I mean, you're, you're talking about a situation where uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews um, were either basically forcibly converted or are expelled from uh, from Spain at the time. Now, one of the lesser known heroes of that entire story is Bayezid II. Bayezid II doesn't get nearly the historical credit that he deserves, but Bayezid II was the, the sultan of the Ottoman Empire. And he realized that the Jewish population of Spain was actually a very high-functioning population. They were doctors and lawyers and scribes and poets and scientists um, because they weren't allowed to own land. Even during the Reconquista, Jews weren't allowed to own land, so they never became agricultural workers. They were urban 
the Reconquista is the um, uh, Christian reclamation of the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain, from Muslim control. Because right, Muslims, Muslims had conquered it previously, and over a period of time, Christians retook that land, and that's called the Reconquista. Right, which is funny because Christians, another form of Christians, invited them in, which is always the it's always bookended. It's funny bookended by Christians. It was the Aryan Christians that invited the Muslims in to protect them. And then the Muslims said, we're going to stay. Yeah. Um, and so funny, be careful who you invite in. They might stay. Um, it, it, like with the Maccabees initially were allied with the Romans and then oh, yeah. the Romans a century later just take over. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Be careful who, when you make a deal with an empire, um, just be sure that the empire will eventually win. Um, that's just a, that's a pretty good bet. So the, the, in 1492, the Jews are expelled. Bayes of the second basically takes his entire flotilla over to Spain and he, he gets as many Jews as he can. And he takes them over to the Ottoman empire. Most of them settle in what is uh, now Salonika. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, if you want a sense of how successful this population was, they, there were no printing presses in 1492 In 1493, there was one in Salonika. Right. You're, you can see rapidly the Jewish populations really coming into its own. Um, and there was a lot of religious toleration. Well, the Jews who had become very interested in Kabbalah um, were very convinced by this time that the end of the world was about to happen. They were convinced of the imminent arrival of the Messiah and the imminent end of the world. And it's not hard to believe the world's going to end when your world just kind of ended. And many of them who were very taken with the Kabbalah move into in the Ottoman Empire, remember that part of Greece and Palestine and all this area is just the Ottoman Empire, they all move to what is now uh, the area of Svat or Safed. And that is where Shimon Bar Yochai is traditionally said to be buried on the mountain there at Meron. And it's and in that what, environment. What, what country would that be in today? Israel. It'd right. be in Israel. Yeah, it'd be in, it'd be in the Galilee. Right. Um, not far. I mean, from from not far from the Sea of Galilee. You could 45 minute drive or something. Um, so they settled there and they began to intensely not only study Kabbalah, but teach it publicly for the first time. And they do that because they now think that the public teaching of the Kabbalah is going to be part of bringing the Messiah. Right. So they think this is what's about to happen. We're about to usher in the Messiah and the teaching the Kabbalah. Right. For the first time in 3000 years or whatever, is going to be the last thing we have to do. Well, as they're teaching the, uh, teaching the Kabbalah, it begins to get more and more systematized until the greatest system of it ever produced. Um, one of the greatest systems is produced by a name, a guy, a rabbi named Moshe Cordovero. Cordovero basically popularizes the Kabbalah in a way that no one else ever had before. And he dies. And on the day that he died, Isaac Luria arrived in Safed. In fact, uh, Isaac Luria said that the, that the front of the funeral train of Moshe Cordovero he could see the same pillar of God that had, uh, that had, uh, that had guided the Israelites in the desert, that it had returned. Cool. They, were, they were that close, right? This is the messianic fervor, right? Literally, the pillar of fire has returned. And so what we have is a very weird situation where this otherwise unknown character, Isaac Luria, arrives in Safed. He lives there for a couple of years, and then he dies. He's only there for two years. And in that two years, he presents a vision of the Kabbalah so radical and so systematic that that version basically sticks. And so in many ways, the Kabbalah, as anyone knows it, if you've ever heard the term Kabbalah, if you've ever heard of Kabbalistic concepts, that almost all of them are through this Lurianic lens. 
So without it. Honestly, so, without exception. So Lurianic Kabbalism is now the dominant form it's the of dominant Kabbalism. Form. There are a few holdouts that hold on to Cordovera system. I'm personally more um, convinced is not the right word. I'm more sympathetic to Cordovera system, but I'm a real minority. Almost everybody who's anybody who says they study Kabbalah is studying the form of Kabbalah as taught by Isaac Luria. Now, Luria didn't write anything down. He just taught. And it was his students that ultimately wrote things down. And the collected works of Isaac Luria are actually really one of his students' works, a guy named Chaim Vital. And Chaim Vital systematized Kabbalah as we know it. Um, his collected works are about 22 volumes-ish. And that is basically, those 22 volumes are now considered to be the standard um, expression of Kabbalistic ideas in, in Judaism. So um, we're going to talk in a minute about what uh, Kabbalists believe, but I want to complete one more element of their history first. Another major figure in uh, the history of Kabbalah is a gentleman uh, known as the Baal Shem Tov, which is mm -hmm. Hebrew for the Lord of the good name or the master with a good reputation or however you want to translate it. Who is he and when did he live? So the Baal Shem Tov uh, it was a... So there were a, a group of people called uh, uh, Balei Shemot, Lords of the Name. And these Lords of the Name were something like sh Jewish shamans living in Eastern Europe. Now, I know that sounds really weird, but they, they used Jewish mysticism and Jewish magic to heal people. They were sort of charismatic healers and preachers. Uh, they're called Balei Shemot because they would use combinations of God's name in various combinations to heal people. Uh, think about disease is a lock and you're using the various names of God to cure the, to, to pick the lock. And then you can heal people of, of disease. This is what kind, the Baalei Shemot were doing. Kind of like in the new Testament, the apostles might say, be healed in the name of Jesus. Name of Jesus and, yeah. Yeah. It, this idea of using a name of a God to, uh, to, to do, to affect change in the world goes back to ancient, the ancient Near East to use, it's ubiquitous in the ancient Near East. Um, and so, yeah, same with uh, in the in the name of uh, in the exorcistic ritual that's still used in the ritual a Romanum, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's still you're cast out in the name of um, you know by the power of by the, you know the power of Christ compels you, the blood of the martyrs. It's like this very sort of repetitious thing. So, the Baal Shem Tov was one of these charismatic Jewish shamanistic healers, and eventually he settled in Eastern Europe and developed a form of radical Jewish piety, deeply infused with Kabbalah, called Hasidism. And Hasidism, uh, which means the pious ones, uh, and these Hasidim eventually would, um, his students would fracture into different uh, dynasties, and that would form the various world of Hasidic Judaism, which is a highly mystical, highly emotional, highly pietistic um and um, very dynastic. If you've ever seen guys on the street in New York or in Israel with the long black coats and the very long peyote and the furry hats, trimals, almost the, all the of those peyote guys. or the side locks. The side locks, yeah. Um, you, if you've ever seen those guys, they're probably Hasidic. Uh, now they have opponents called misnagdim, mitnagdim, uh, which literally means the opposers. Uh, I tend to be on the opposer side. Um, my, a good friend of mine is Hasidic, and I'm the token mitnag, the token non-Hasidic Hasidic person. But Hasidic Judaism is deeply infused with Kabbalistic ideas, deeply infused. Um, 
So much so that if you're walking on the street in New York on a random day, young Jewish guys might stop you, ask if you're Jewish, and if you are, ask you to put on uh, tefillin, which are the boxes that go on the, the left arm and on the forehead, and then ask you to say a prayer. And they're doing that for Kabbalistic reasons. Part of the repair of the world. It's part of the repair of the world. Yeah, they think that, yeah, that the, the, uh, they believe that the arrival of the Messiah is imminent, and it's just the right person doing the right uh, commandment at the right time will sort of roll over the whole thing. And that'll unlock the, the Messiah. Um, one can wonder about this theology, but that's what they believe. So and they even have some Hasidim even have proposed candidates for the Messiah, like uh, the Schneerson. Uh, right. Or, Rabbi, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson of Blessed Memory. And here I say you can hear me say of blessed memory there because mm-hmm. I'm indicating that I believe that he's dead. There are. Uh, members of one of these dynasties, the Lubavitch dynasty, there is a subset of those that do not believe he's dead. They believe he's simply hidden and that he uh, he died in 1990, the 1990s um, and that they believe he's hidden and he will reveal himself soon as the Messiah. Um, there are active candidates for the Messiah in most of the Hasidic camps these days. The uh, What's called Mashiach Lador. Mashiach Lador is the idea that there is a uh, there is a potential Messiah, and these are all the potential messiahs that exist, and that um, if things work out correctly, one of them will be activated, so to speak. Kind of, um, sounds kind of like collapsing the wave function in uh, in quantum <laughs> physics. Quantum mechanics, You've got yeah. all these possibilities, and then boom, boom. There's boom. one of them, yeah. Um, uh, and, and in the 1990s, 80s, late 80s and 90s, the the Chabad Lubavitch movement really did believe. Um, really did believe that they, they had the one. And um, uh, to this day, I've met people who say things. I've, I've studied in a, a yeshiva, uh, a Jewish, um, a Jewish like seminary, and uh, definitely met people there who were like, yeah, the Rebbe is the Messiah. He is hidden and he will return soon and rule the world. Hmm. I'm like, okay. <laughs> now, um, back to the Baal Shem Tov real quick. Uh, we sh- probably should clarify that's not his name. That's his nickname or his appellation. Right. His actual name was, uh, to pronounce it the English way, would be Israel Ben Eliezer. Right. Um, and he lived in the 1700s, correct? The 18th century, right. Okay. Um, so yeah, what is now primarily the Ukraine, um, uh, the Pale of Russia, the Ukraine, Podolia, that region? Um, and his the places his the places that where he existed and lived are still sites of pilgrimage. They're not so easy to get to now. Um, and he's also you sometimes you hear him referred to as the Besht, which is just a you smash together Baal Shem Tov into one word and right. call him the Besht. Okay, um, so we've kind of covered some of the major movements in or uh, shifts, I should say, in uh, in the history of Kabbalah. Let's talk about what Kabbalists believe. What do they believe about God. All right. So this is where things get very complicated, very fast. And that's the end of this week's discussion with Dr. Sledge. Jimmy, what would you like to say before we close? I'd like to thank Dr. Sledge for coming on. I think we had a really fascinating first part of the discussion. And next week, when we talk about the teachings of Kabbalah, it will be even more interesting. As Dr. Sledge pointed out, this is where things get very complicated very fast, and they also get really, really weird. So stay tuned for that. Awesome. Jimmy, what further resources can the listeners and viewers check out before then? 
We'll have uh, links to information on Kabbalah as well as Dr. Sledge's Esoterica channel, including his playlist on Kabbalah. Uh, he has a multi-part uh, course on it, and we'll also have a link to his personal website. Great. And uh, so let's move on to our mysterious headlines. What are our mysterious headlines for the week? Well, we have uh, we're talking about the history of Kabbalah this time. And so we're talking about the history of the universe for mysterious headlines. We've got a cosmology theme and one that involves dark matter. Uh, we'll have a link to a story about dark stars, which are a proposal for what the first stars in the universe may have been. They, um, as people may know, dark matter is held to interact with ordinary matter gravitationally. And it's supposed to be responsible for the structure of large-scale things like galaxies and so forth. And um, there's a new theory, this is just a proposal, but there's a new theory that early in the universe, when everything was much more clumped together, that the dark matter would have been clumped together too. And there may have been hybrid dark matter, regular matter stars that were fueled not just by hydrogen fusion occurring, but also by dark matter annihilation. And so there's this theory that maybe the first stars in the universe were powered by, at least in part by dark matter. There are hopes to use new telescopes to be able to verify that. And so you can read all about that. Also, speaking of dark matter, there has been a new particle discovered. Now, people will remember the Higgs boson that was discovered at the Large Hadron Collider a few years ago. Um, well, the Large Hadron Collider is a very big machine. You know, it spans miles. But on a tabletop machine, some scientists say they recently found a relation of the Higgs boson known as the axial Higgs boson, which is like the regular Higgs boson, but it also has a magnetic moment. So it interacts uh, magnetically as well as gravitationally. And the axial Higgs boson is itself a dark matter candidate. So this could be the first evidence of a dark matter particle to actually be discovered. So you can read about that, too. Awesome. We'll have links in our show notes. So that's it from us this time. We would love to hear your theories about the origins of Kabbalah and its teachings. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can join the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, where we have a channel just for the show, or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to thank uh, the folks from Oasis Studio 7 for all the video and animation work they do here on Mysterious World. Uh, if you have any uh, video editing needs, video animation needs, be sure to check them out. And you can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. We've been getting a lot of positive feedback about the uh, added value that the video work they do brings to the program. And while you're at YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my channel. I'm trying to grow it and so i'd really appreciate it if you like comment and subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a new video uh, notification whenever i have a video out whether it's mysterious world or something else excellent so jimmy what's our next episode going to be about 
Next week, we'll be talking about the secret teachings of Kabbalah. According to Kabbalists, these were held secret for thousands of years, but now they're publicly known. So we'll be discussing what Kabbalists believe about God, the creation of the world, the origin of evil, the afterlife, and what they believe they need to do in order to fix everything. Excellent. Folks, remember to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from to help us grow this community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines in our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 218. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Technology. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash technology.